Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Threepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void where prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. All right, welcome to Royals Review Radio. I'm Max Reaper, the editor of Royals Review. Later on, we'll have some of our writers on to discuss whether this terrible Royal season, in, in the standings at least, is actually a good thing for them long term. But first of all, we have a special guest with us today. Kylie McDaniel writes about prospects in the draft for Fangraphs, which has become an invaluable resource, I think, for anyone who's interested in player development, whether it's minor league prospects or the draft. Kylie, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Yep, thanks for having me. You know, I think for, for at least several weeks, or if not months, the general consensus has seemed to be that with the number one pick, the Orioles would take Oregon State catcher Adley Rushman, while the Royals at number two were probably leaning towards uh, Texas prep infielder Bobby Witt Jr. Um, you've had some mock drafts re- recently that maybe at least tap the brakes on that a little bit. What's, what's kind of the latest you're hearing on, on how things are going to go with the first couple picks? Yeah, I've been... We've been, I guess, Eric and I, but also I have been, um, talking to sources around those first few picks, because obviously if you're trying to do a mock draft and you miss the first few picks, then you automatically miss the next few behind that, so, you know, you'd like to get those right. Um, we had ours uh, come out this morning, and I don't know if we put this specifically in there, but I think we have it at about 85% chance that Rutschman goes one, and I would say probably about the same number, if not, uh, well, yeah, I guess it'd probably be about 85% that Wit goes two also. Um, I think the different scenarios would be um, Blade, Rutschman, Witt all have a chance to go one. I would say Witt would be the most likely as the alternative at one. And if Witt goes one, we've been told Rutschman will go two. So I would say the odds of it going Rutschman, Witt in some order is probably well over 90% now. And I would say the chance that there is some third player that goes at one of those first two picks is... I don't know, five percent or less. What seems to be kind of like the Royals' kind of pickup? It seems like they have a little bit of a preference for the higher upside high school kid. Uh, there's been some concerns, I guess, about his his age being kind of an older high school player, and a little bit of concern about his hit tool. Can, can you talk about a little bit as a prospect and what those concerns are with his hit tool, and what what your kind of your feelings are and his hitting ability? He's an interesting prospect because uh, typically the track record of the uh, the guy that has stood out for multiple summers uh, and has a long track record of sort of performing in one way or another um, at you know summer showcases is very is very strong. Um, even if it's a guy like Alex Jackson that doesn't quite meet his potential, they often don't just like flame out. Like having multiple summers of making contact often against guys uh, older than you are is a pretty good indicator that they'll be able to hit at some level. Um, Witt also has, I think he had basically three summers of some level of performing in front of scouts where he stood out so much uh, for being both a potential shortstop that can run, has some power, and has some hitability back when he was, I guess, 16. 
um, that he would get invited to these events and hold his own. And so some of the like the research around uh, older hitters, which usually, you know, if you break it into like three groups, it'd be like uh, 18.2 and younger and then like 18.2 to maybe 18.8 would be like a middle um, group. And then 18.9 and older would be like the old group. And so Witt's 19.0 on draft day. So he'd be with the older group. Uh, part of the reason that there is sort of a concern on that is the idea not only that there is physical development, so like all things being equal, you want a younger player because more sort of positive things can happen in terms of development, but also it's more important for hitters because they're facing uh, pitchers who are all younger than they are. And so if you have a 17-year-old facing generally guys in his class, they're all older than he is. If you have a 19-year-old facing all 17 and 18-year-olds that are younger than he is, uh, not only has he already physically developed an additional year, which is something of note, uh, he's also sort of facing guys younger than him, which when that guy signs, he'll be going to minor leagues and facing all guys older than him. Uh, so you're basically getting a skewed view of what the prospect may be. That's the reason why sort of age for top couple round high school hitters is very important, whereas for all other demographics, it's much less important. Um, it's a little bit neutered with wit because when he was 16, he was facing 18 year olds and holding his own. And when he was 17, he was doing it. And then when he was 18, he was doing it. And now he's about to turn 19 right after the draft and he's still performing pretty well. Um, so the, his style of play, uh, sort of the, the general comp we use is Trevor story, which is, it's probably a five or a strong four in terms of contact, which would be like, you know, 250, 260 hitter. But he's got plus power, uh, you know, 25-ish home runs, if not more, chance to be above average at shortstop, a plus runner, um, like does everything you want him to do, um, but like sort of gets, sort of has a more polished approach in terms of the sort of player he will be in the big leagues is the sort of player he is now. Whereas the um, the other sort of shortstop at the top of the draft, CJ Abrams, is unusual in that he projects to have a better hit tool because he's more of a contact-oriented guy. Um, but he probably will change his game a bit as he grows up because he's like flashing above average draw power and swings like a guy who does not have above average draw power. So he's probably a better hit tool guy, will probably be a strong five or six hit tool guy, but actually is less polished, which normally it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. um, it's usually very clearly the guy that's more polished also is a better hitter and is sort of easy to classify as like, you know, high risk, low risk, high ceiling, low ceiling. It seems like there's been a lot of like positive press, I think, for Witt, and for good reason too. I mean, he's named a Gatorade Player, National Player of the Year today uh, at the high school level. Uh, Jim Callis had a, an article this week at MLB.com about how uh, a lot of evaluators are saying that Witt may be one of the best shortstops, uh, you know, the prospects they've seen in the draft in, in decades. Can you give us kind of maybe a relative, uh, you know, evaluation of, of where Witt stands in terms of past drafts, or maybe like where the top of this draft stands? As, uh, in terms of a, a recent drafts or drafts in the last 10, 15 years, is this like a good year to have the number two pick overall, or are the Royals maybe kind of getting the short end of the stick by being bad last year? Uh, I think the perception is that this draft is a top two or three, depending on which teams you ask. Um, and I think it's pretty a clear consensus across the industry that Rutschman is one, Witt is two. And then opinions vary on three, but some teams feel very strongly about one of those other, you know, three or four players. Um, I know I talked to one team that's picking in the top ten, and they said, "I wish we could trip to three and get the guy we want." Mm -hmm. um, so that 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 seems to be like a bit of a consensus there. Um, as far as past years, like obviously the year with um, Sinzel and Moniak kind of going toward the top in terms of hitters. Like I think Rushman's better than Sinzel. I think what's much better than Moniak, and so that would be probably like more of a low water mark uh, amongst draft classes. 
And when you mentioned shortstop, it made me think like who the guys are perceived to be like the best sort of draft hitting prospects. And it's typically corner guys and outfielders. So when you said shortstop, I was trying to think of who the other sort of very high end shortstops off the top of my head would be. And I mean, I guess like that Bregman Swanson class um, and Brendan Rogers, all three of them uh, were shortstops. And so those, those would be guys to sort of compare him to, but I think uh, what's upside is like a five hit six power potential six glove with six speed People did not think Bregman would turn into that. Swanson has not turned into that. I think Rodgers was seen as like something like that, but not quite the runner and defender. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it is generally correct to say that this is a good year to be picking in those top couple picks and be able to have access to that top tier. Um, and I think uh, like this year it looks like it is seen that the top tier is a six hitters. And so the team picking seventh, the Reds, seem to be in sort of the worst spot where they picked the wrong year to be exactly as bad as they were. Uh, and it sounds like they want one of those six players. And today, in today's chat, uh, I said the odds of one of those six getting to them is probably about 10%. And it looks like um, seven, eight, and nine all have similar conceptions of the talent drop off and are all looking to go under slot. Um, so then, sort of get multiple players rather than paying like a retail price for what they think is sort of like the top of tier two. Yeah, I know, I know another guy that uh, has been really popular on our boards has been Cal first baseman Andrew Vaughn, who uh, tied the school record for home runs last year. He's had a pretty good year this year as well. Uh, I, I know there's probably like no chance the Royals take him. He doesn't seem like the kind of hitter they, they typically like to take, especially this high in the draft. But um, you know, tell us about Vaughn a little bit as a, as a draft prospect, and, and is there concern about taking a, a right-handed college first baseman this high? Because I know that's been... 20 years, I think, since a college first baseman was taken in those first two picks. It sounds like Vaughn maybe, maybe will slip to three or four or five, possibly. Uh, what, what about Vaughn's upside, and, and does his, you know, playing a non-premium position like first base kind of limit his value a bit? And also his physicality. I mean, there's uh, there's a kid named Tyler Callahan, a Jacksonville area high school hitter that's probably going to go in late first or comp round that some teams think is a six hitter with six power could possibly end up as, you know, one of the top 10 players in the draft class if that comes to fruition, but has sort of a boxy limited body that might possibly, he can play third base now, might possibly lead him over to first base eventually. And some teams are basically saying, yeah, uh, we like him. We think he's going to be a six hit six bat or something close to that or six hit six power or something close to it, but we just don't like the body and we think it's going to end up being a first baseman. And then if he's a little worse than we think, then he's a platoon guy. And then you kind of go down this road where, like, you can be off by just a little bit, and the guy goes from being an average to above average everyday player to a platoon guy that you could probably go sign on the free agent market for $2 million a year. Um, and I think that's basically what you're seeing with Vaughn, where it's not, not a great athlete, uh, not a standout defender. Um, it's not massive raw power. It's probably 60, maybe 65. Um, but it's very good sort of hit tool and approach. Uh, but the issue then is if I would say the industry consensus would be probably six at six power, maybe like a strong six. Some teams will say seven and seven, which is definitely not like a consensus view. Um, but if it's seven and seven, then that's, uh, you know, Paul Goldschmidt. And if it's five and five, then that's CJ Cron. And if it's like six and six, it's like, you know, Pete Alonso is like something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like sort of different tiers of what can happen. And the difference between projecting a guy to be a seven and seven when the industry thinks he's a six and six and he ends up being like a five and five with maybe a year or two better than that, um, that five and five guy, the CJ Cron type, uh, that guy in year four might get non-tendered. Whereas Goldschmidt is like a franchise cornerstone. And like, that's a pretty small difference. We're obviously projecting just the hidden power tools for a guy that's in college that has never faced professional level pitching before. Um, that's like a reasonable range to be guessing on. But the reason why college, you know, 
right-handed hitting first baseman without great athleticism or sort of frame, if that's like a center fielder with that sort of range, it's like, oh, if it's a 7-7, seven seven, then he is a 7-win player and he's, you know, a superstar. If it's a 5-5, five and five, then he's still a solid, above-average, everyday player. And so, like, the floor uh, makes you more enthusiastic about taking that guy and you have the chance at a superstar. Um, and so you can see why when you get sort of lower in the round, these guys like last year, the Angels took Jordan Adams, a guy who had basically got good at baseball in the last two months before the draft, but has like literally Byron Buxton level tools. Uh, they're like, oh, well, we can get into this. If we're even close to you know getting these tools correct, this guy's going to easily be an everyday player. Even if it ends up being four hit, four power, he's an eight runner and a seven defender um, that's an insane athlete and will probably take well the coaching and improve and all that sort of thing. That's the margin for error guys want with these sorts of picks. And Andrew Vaughn does not give you that margin for error. All right. Yeah, we know the number two pick is going to be really important for the Royals in the rebuild, but they really need just a good draft class overall, especially after so many years where they've kind of whiffed on the draft uh, in recent years. So, you know, the Royals won't have, you know, last year they took all those college pitchers because they had multiple picks early in the draft. This year they won't pick uh, after number two. They won't pick again until number 44. Uh, but what are you kind of hearing about how the Royals might approach the draft or what do you expect might happen with them they've talked about accelerating the rebuild so it, you know would that indicate maybe they want to go for more polished college guys or um is it really kind of just up in the air at this point yeah it's it's tough to project them because last year they had a ton of picks uh we along with the entire industry saw them at a lot of high school games uh sort of upside as you're saying like wit being their type uh they were scouting a bunch of guys that were quote their type and then they end up taking all college pitching. And it is still sort of unclear, although we have some suspicions, uh, whether that was you know misdirection. They were actually on the college guys, but they went to the high school games to misdirect people, which I don't think that'd be like a poor way to spend your um, resources. Uh, two, they thought they were going to take high school guys, then they got in there and the board lined up in such a way that the college guys made sense, which I think is the most likely one. And the third one is Dayton Moore just came in and said, oh, you guys want to take high school guys. Uh, I'm in charge now. This is, you know, this draft in a lot of ways will decide if I get to continue being the GM, so I'm going to make the picks and I want to take college guys. Uh, you know, maybe that's the second most likely outcome. But I, I would say in all reality, it's probably more that's what the board gave them. And so that's who they took. Um, and they were at a lot of games because with these teams like Arizona this year have tons of picks. They kind of bring in extra guys that normally aren't doing the draft because they need to see more players, keep tabs on them more often and have sort of more and stronger opinions because it's sort of a franchise altering opportunity. Um, so I think their type, sort of what the scouts want, is still the same sort of player. It remains to be seen if that is the player they end up taking uh, because the industry um, this is actually something we're going to write about this week at the, at the site. Uh, during draft week is uh, it used to be traditionally speaking like back when the, the Moneyball book came out um, that traditional teams would take tools and upside and were seen as dumb and progressive teams would take essentially boring white college players that performed and were seen as smart and at that time that was correct because those college players were being undervalued. It's slowly turned now that um, the high school upside players have such potential and free agent prices are getting so high that and now you can quantify with exit velo and sprint speed and all these sorts of things exactly what a player's upside is in a way that you don't have to just trust the scouts eyeballs you can quantify it um that i think progressive teams are now much more comfortable especially with like you know summer showcases and things like that taking that upside player like you've seen the angels who are quote a progressive team taking a bunch of upside guys and obviously joe adele and some of these other guys have worked out pretty well that now i think there are more teams willing to take the royals type of player getting there using a different process and so I don't think necessarily the Royals uh, 
proclivities for uh, high upside players has changed. I think the rest of the industry has changed and sort of landed on some of the things the Royals had been doing when it was sort of a small group of teams like the Marlins and the Braves and the Padres and the Royals that were picking those sorts of players. Now there's a bunch of other teams that are into those sorts of players. Um, so I think then in lieu of that, you know, the, the safe college pitcher is sort of the backup option when the guy you really want isn't there. Um, so I think obviously wit will be seen as a lot of teams take as portfolio approach. You take the high upside a lot of your bonus pool goes to that guy with your first pick. You feel more free to take the sort of more generic college guy with later picks, um, especially if you think that Wit might move quickly. And so your timetable is picking a you know uh, Ethan Small, twenty-two-year-old um, college. Uh, I think he's a redshirt junior, maybe he's a senior um, out of Mississippi State. There's like a performance guy. Like oh, he'll be there in two years, but it's like oh, Wit might be there in three years. Uh, so it's not like that guy doesn't really fit um, our timetable. So I. I yeah, I don't think necessarily their preferences have changed, but I think the industry around them is changing enough that it might appear that their preferences are changing. Yeah. Well, if you're if you're interested in following the draft, I mean, definitely go to Fangraphs. I love the board, which has you know all the rankings of the top prospects, has little scouting reports and, and uh, their their rankings as well. Uh, tell us a little bit what what you guys have planned at Fangraphs to to get us ready for the draft. Yeah, if you go to the site uh, right now or probably the next few days, uh, some draft article will probably be the sort of headline article. There's also a nav bar uh, at the top of each of these articles and on the main page of the site. Uh, we did our third mock draft today. We'll do a fourth one on Monday, the, the day of the draft, the morning. And then we'll do, a, I guess, a 4.1 with just names right before the draft starts. Uh, we'll do a live chat and also be doing some tweeting during the draft. We'll do a day one review of all the first day picks the morning after. We'll do a podcast and article reviews of all the picks after that. Uh, we'll have an odds and ends post about here's who we think is going to sign, some rumors about signability, some colleges that got hit hard or lightly and look to be strong for next year. Spoiler alert, Vanderbilt's going to be really good. They're, I think they're going to come out like bandits in this whole process. Uh, and then this week, um, we're recording this on Wednesday, um, we'll be doing some articles about where uh, farm systems stand currently, where we, how much we think they'll improve with adding uh, drafted players. An introduction to the board with a bunch of sort of mini two or three hundred word uh, pieces about um, trends that we're seeing and interesting things to keep an eye on. And then I have uh, a preview podcast we'll be doing with myself and Eric, and uh, we'll be previewing all of the NCAA regionals with prospects to look for if you watch any of the games over this weekend. And I also have an article about swing changes and how player development and, and sort of draft signability are all sort of coming together to change the way that high school hitters are deciding to use their sort of teenage and early 20s years to become pro-level hitters. Well, I hope you're, you have a glowing review of the Royals draft next week because we really need to nail this one. Uh, it's been it's been some lean years in the draft. Last year was pretty good. It's worked out so far, but uh, the Royals really need to nail this one. Kylie McDaniel, thanks so much for joining us today, and uh, we'll have to have you uh, on again sometime. Yep, thanks for having me. All right. Most of the time, we talk about tech in terms of a handful of gigantic companies like Google, Meta, and Apple. But some of the most interesting stuff we find online is the product of a single person. When you're working on your own, I think there's this beauty of being able to come up with an idea and then implement it. Then, in that moment, you don't have to have permission from someone else. There's no red tape. In the Vergecast series, Solo Acts, we'll get to know these people, the tech they use to get stuff done, and the obstacles they face trying to compete with the giants. Some people that I talk to and my friends are like, you know, your competitors are Zuckerberg and Musk. Like, aren't you kind of, like, afraid of that? Every Monday, our friend Ashley Escada will be curating and hosting these interviews and sharing with us what she's learned. I can't believe the McRib locator was originally a tornado locator. Right. <laughs> Pretty wild. Listen to our Solo Acts miniseries now in the Vergecast feed, anywhere you find podcasts.
Uh, joining me as usual now is co-host Sean Newkirk. Sean, are you pumped for the draft next week? Man, I'll tell you what. I I am at, at least at a 6. 6 out of 10 for it. Shouldn't you be grading um, on a 2080 scale on that? Yeah, the only problem is like there's no there's no uh, mystique about it. I think we're all fairly sure who they're going to take. It'd be nice because like last year it was like, hey, you know they've got 18 guys going in front of them. Who who knows who they're going to take? But this year it's like, all right, we know we're going to take. All right, let's move on. Well, that did more. He's got he's always got a few uh, aces up his sleeve, so maybe he's going to pull a funny one uh, next week when the Royals get to draft. Also joining us is with tremendous upside and high uh, a good feel for pitching is Matthew Lamar. Matthew, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. Got a cat on my lap. I'm ready to go. Okay, that's part of the scouting report. Is he got he's got a cat on his lap? That's unique yeah. in, in baseball. Also joining us, uh, fresh from talking to uh, a young man who might get drafted next week, Bobby Witt Jr. is Alex Duvall. Alex, how was uh, Mr. Witt, uh, who was named Gatorade National Gatorade Player of the Year today? Man, he sounded excited and busy all in one, and it was good talking to him. Well, he's about to make many millions of dollars, so I would hope he's pretty excited about it. And he's got a chance to be a Kansas City Royal, so that's in itself pretty exciting. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the draft later, but first I want to talk about those losing Royals who, as Sean Newkirk pointed out on Twitter, still have not run, won a road series all year. Uh, a few weeks ago, we were all kind of calling for the promotion of Nicky Lopez to the big league level, and, and I, I think he was very deserving of that. And after an initial hot start, Lopez has, has cooled off a little bit. He's gone through an 0-for-20 slump. Uh, starting to strike out quite a bit. Now, Alex, is this just kind of a rookie taking his lumps, or is there maybe something more that uh, we should be concerned about with, with Lopez? No, this just feels like a rookie taking his lumps. One thing that I noticed uh, a lot from him in Omaha was that, you know, he walked a lot in Omaha and didn't strike out much, but a lot of that is he was working deep counts, and then when he got to two strikes, he was able to just foul pitches off, foul pitches off, foul pitches off, and then either put it in play or a walk. And it's a big league level. Big league pitchers have better put-away pitches. And so I think the adjustment he'll have to make is getting a little more aggressive earlier in the count, not waiting around until he has two strikes, not waiting around until the big league pitchers give him their best pitch. So once he makes that adjustment, I think he'll be fine. I'm not in the least bit worried. Yeah, he had the lowest strikeout in the minors, and now he's come up here and his strikeout rate is a is 18%, which is small sample size. Uh, and that's also not terrible. That's kind of average but certainly higher than you would expect. And what's interesting to me is that uh, of his 11 strikeouts so far, four of them have been caught looking. And I noticed a couple strikeouts over the weekend. It seemed like he was almost like surprised it was called a strike. And now maybe that's just like you say, it's it's big leaguers have different out pitches than the minors. It could be some of it just getting used to the mi- uh, major league umpiring. And some of it could just be like dumb luck. And, and you know, he's, he's getting used to being in the big leagues. But uh, something to keep an eye on. But, I yeah, I think I agree with you. Not anything to be too alarmed about Sean are you what's kind of your initial reaction from from Nicky Lopez so far oh I, I would DFA him immediately uh no I think uh yeah I mean Lopez is always kind of just he he is who he is um it, it, it's like the lack of the strikeouts I wouldn't say the strikeouts are that surprising I mean what was he running like a three or four percent strikeout rate mm-hmm. in triple a uh that's I mean that's a ridiculous number so like him coming up from that that makes sense um, but I think it uh, I think the power is what something that maybe we weren't concerned enough about um, that you know it's kind of been realistic because he's I want to say I, I'd have to look at his ground ball rate but I was thinking he had a still had a crazy high ground ball rate and like most of his hits have just been kind of low line drives opposite field and that's about who we thought um i i don't think that you know he's probably not a 222 hitter uh but i think he's probably 
like uh, 85, 80-ish WRC plus guy. So he's still got some room up, but um, you know he's running a 60% ground ball rate. Actually, so that's kind of par for the course of what he did in the minors. Um, so I don't know. He's limited. So I, you know, I know he had a hot start, but you know, hopefully everybody wasn't thinking like, oh, we just promoted you know a 300 slash 400 slash you know 500 hitter in Lopez. Yeah, I mean, he's never been like a top prospect on a big prospect list. Um, but you know, you know, it's a rookie up for the up for the first time. I don't, you know, I think people should probably kind of temper Absolutely. their expectations if they weren't tempered right. already. And and Matthew, you know, honestly, the guy could hit like 150 for the rest of the year, and I think fans would still like prefer to see him over Chris Owings. I mean, it's still nice to see some of these younger players up, even if they do struggle initially. Don't you think? Right. I mean. Uh, the point of Nicky the point of Nicky Lopez and why people were excited to see him is that um, you know Nicky Lopez has some upside in him. You know we don't we don't know what he could be. He could be great. He could be not. But the point is, he could be something that Chris Owings will never be. You know that even someone like Rosal Herrera last year will will never be right. So Lopez has uh, has promise in him. You know he just uh, he just turned. 24 a couple months ago, which is, which is, you know, not super young, but still pretty young and a lot younger than the rest of the roster. So, you know, at this point, like he's had 60 some plate appearances. It's and as, as much as I loathe to use this word because it gets you misused so much. Like the process is why uh, Lopez should be up here. As in there's a reason that fans uh, want to see these young players. And, uh, you can't expect a guy like Lopez or even a Hosmer or Moustakas or anything to immediately hit the ground running. You know, it's it's just it's just part of it. And the very fact that Lopez is here as opposed to Chris Owings is, you know, that, that that's great. Yeah, definitely a step in the right direction. And he's still, even if he's not hitting, which, you know, he like I said, he got off to a pretty good start initially. He's still providing good speed and defense. We saw a really nice play from him on Sunday on a ground ball up the middle. So I think... Having him in the lineup every day is, is going to be contributing something, uh, and I think he'll sn- snap out of this funk before too long. And the Royals, you know, they've gotten some really good offensive performances this year uh, out of guys like Hunter Dozier, Whit Merrifield, Alex Gordon, Adalberto Montesi. Despite all that, they've stumbled out to the second-worst record in baseball, and of course the big culprit is pitching. So let's turn to the, the arms right now. They currently have the third-worst ERA in baseball. And while we have seen some improvement from the bullpen in the month of May, it's the starting pitching that has really been a disaster. It's, they still have had an ERA over five this month and for the year. We saw Jorge Lopez get sent to the bullpen. At first, we thought it was maybe a temporary thing, but it turns out Ned Yosa said today that it was probably going to be more long-term. They're going to try out some, uh, Glenn Sparkman, at least initially, for the rotation. Sean, do you have any kind of hope that Lopez can kind of turn things around in the bullpen? Uh, or is that trade just really that Mike Mustakas trade for Lopez and Brett Phillips? Is that really looking like a clunker right now? Yeah, and I mean, I think a clunker might not be the right term necessarily, um, just because like it was for whatever it was two months of Mustakas, so it wasn't like you were going to get um, uh, Vlad Jr. out of it or anything. Um, but Lopez, I don't know if he's looked really worse than expected. Um, you know, he kind of kicked around. I mean, he was in the minors. You know, he got promoted, got sent back down. I think he he debuted in 15, got sent back down in 15 maybe, but he was there in 16, he was there in 17, he was there with the, you know, went back up in 17, back down in 18. So, I mean, he's he's kind of uh, kind of is who he is, I guess if that makes sense and um I would like to see him in the bullpen I think makes more sense. 
uh, we were looking the other day, and I, I mean, I think his pitches were all pretty much just flat. He was getting pounded on everything. So I think, you know, what he could conceivably do is kind of just knock it down, throw, you know, ditch the change up and just go some sort of fastball curveball or fastball slider. Um, he's kind of got that mix of curveball slider. So I think just knocking out two pitches and going out there and throwing it at least gives a better chance of him being successful in some role than a starter because he's, he's just not a starter. And, you know, the Royals, I think, it made sense, I think, to give him an extended look in the rotation. I, and I honestly probably would have gone longer with him, you know, just uh, just to get a good long look at him. But I certainly understand cutting the cord with him at this point and seeing if he can become a reliever, especially since he's young enough to maybe become a, a pretty solid reliever. And we know what kind of value that has in the trade market. But that kind of that just kind of leave a hole in the rotation. And like I said, Sparkman's going to fill that for now. And Alex, are there other candidates in the minors that you think could get a look at some point this year or should get a look at, at point, some point this year? Not really. Um, <laughs> Eric Skoglin, Eric Skoglin's working back. He'll be, I think Flanny tweeted that he'll be on a, a rehab stint June 11th. And then in theory, he's back like June 26th. So you're getting Eric Skoglin back. Who's been very Jorge Lopez ish throughout his brief MLB career. Foster Griffin gave up 11 runs today. Um, Arnaldo Hernandez got sent to double a, uh, so yeah, no, I don't, there's not a ton of hope on the horizon in the minor leagues, unfortunately. And so I really, I mean, and it's kind of funny. The Royals have always had guys like, what was that dude's name that started the lefty that started in Minnesota, gave up like 12 runs in the first inning last year, two years ago. Oh, uh, yeah. Onelki Garcia, who's now pitching. Yeah. In Japan, I think. Uh, Onelki Garcia came in did he start and then yeah. someone came in and relieved him and was just as bad yeah, that, yeah. Was Ar- that was Arnaldo Hernandez wasn't it Arnaldo Hernandez yeah so I mean they've always had guys like Onelki Garcia who can step in and make a start and it doesn't seem like they have that so I don't even know who they're going to like who they would physically call on Brian Flynn to make some starts mm-hmm. I like I don't I just don't know who that next guy up is and there's definitely no promising um, um pieces behind him so this this could get really uh really interesting here down the stretch is, is it time maybe to, to try like an opener or um or maybe a bullpen game or you know i know it's something they've been trying in omaha with with josh stamont and kyle zimmer a little bit and i know zimmer's really struggled but stamont's numbers are okay he still has the command issues uh sean is that something you can see the royals trying or is that maybe a little out of their out of their comfort zone uh, I mean, uh, first off, hold on. It was Andres Machado. Oh, Andres uh, Machado. That's name. right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I couldn't. I could picture his face, not his name. Um, yeah. I don't know about the opener. I know. I know. Stamont gets a lot of kind of hype for that idea, and Omaha, I think, has been tinkering with that. Um, but I mean, Stamont still necessarily hasn't proven that he can throw strikes enough. That like, do you really want your opener to come in and walk three guys right off the bat? Um, so I actually think Kyle Zimmer would actually be much more realistic, assuming that Kyle Zimmer can kind of turn it around and figure things out. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't. I don't see them doing the opener unless, um, and you know, unless uh, Glenn Sparkman starts a game, then hits um, Tim Anderson with the pitch, and then you know he's he's back to opener because he's done after you know two innings. Uh, if, only, if only that would happen. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. They have very little starting pitching depth, and it seems like they maybe should be scouring the waiver wire. But they're kind of stuck in a position where they have a you know a set forty man roster that they don't really want to. You know, they seem very reluctant to part with anyone on that roster. But I wonder if like they're getting to the end of the rope with some of these guys, uh, where you know they've kind of gotten their chance 
And, you know, like, what's Heath Fillmire going to really give you at this point, you know, that some guy off the waiver wire, you know, can't give you? I mean, they're, they're pretty interchangeable at this point, I would think. Um, so we'll see if maybe they start bringing in some fresh blood because I kind of agree with, with Alex. There's not a whole lot of guys in Omaha to get excited about. I was going to bring up Foster Griffin, actually. I didn't know he gave up 11 runs today because so, he had actually gotten off to a pretty decent start. Uh, but... He gave up 11? Oh, my God. I didn't notice that. I saw he was down by, like, three or four. I go, okay, whatever. But, man, all right. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I want to bring up, too, regarding the pitching, I know we Cal Eldred's name gets thrown around, and, and I, I kind of want to make a point that, you know, Cal Eldred could do everything right. He could do everything he knows how to do. But if his message is falling on deaf ears, which it appears to be, um, then then if the Royals are invested in their pitchers, like you said, Max, then – maybe the change does need to be at, at pitching coach. And I'm not suggesting that that's, that's Eldred's fault. Again, he could do everything right, but if Lopez and Keller and Junis just aren't getting any better, then like at some point you have to find somebody who can make them better um, because they've all regressed terribly this year. And so, again, I, I don't think it's Eldred's fault, but at some point you have to consider that because the, like the, the core of those starting pitchers have gotten – considerably worse from 2018 yeah well i think though i mean i think eldridge was given a pretty collective group of i I don't know what the euphemism or the definite whatever you want to call but he just hasn't gotten a good group of players and what is he supposed to do with it uh i mean i think we all kind of saw regression for brad keller coming um and then jorge lopez has kind of always been who he was but i don't know i I mean i i don't think this is an eldridge thing i think it's just the roster thing you know yeah yeah for sure and again i don't necessarily disagree i just at some point you have to decide are we invested in the pitchers are the pitchers going to be here long term and do we need to find you know someone who can help them or is it just time to move on from the pitchers if we think cal Eldridge's doing his job and i think ultimately a lot of these pitchers aren't going to be here in a year or two i mean they'll probably sort through you know guys like brad keller and jake junis that they found but, you know, will Glenn Sparkman be here in two years? You know, it's probably not a good chance that he's going to suddenly become a really solid starting pitcher or Heath Fillmire or, you know, no knock on those guys. But, but uh, you know, the, the, their age and their track record uh, probably suggests they're not part of the long-term future. Uh, but the guys that are part of the long-term future are kind of tearing it up in the minor leagues right now. They're mostly the, the guys who are part of last year's draft class. And we saw this week that Brady Singer got moved up to A this week. He'll make his first start for Northwest Arkansas on Saturday. Uh, Chris Bubick was moved up from Lexington to replace Singer in Wilmington, where he joins Daniel Lynch and Jackson Kolar, who are also having great years, and they may get moved up before very long as well. And Matthew, you wrote about kind of the, how the Royals' crop of college pitchers was really working out for the Royals. Um, do you think these guys are enough to at least get the team to respectability, or do you think this they really need to kind of double down on this and it's time to, you know, uh, they're going to need a lot more than just these four arms? It's really, you know, kind of interesting. I think um, the Royals may have been onto something with picking college pitchers. You know, their their track record with with high school pitchers has just been really bad. You know, Foster Griffin might be the best one, and he, you know, he's okay. Maybe I mean he's still he pretty young. Twelve runs today. That's so good. Yeah, 12, 12 runs. Right. You know. Um, granted that that is the type of start that inflates your ERA for the rest of the year. So I don't think, I do think that Foster Griffin could be a guy called up, you know, especially if the Royals have some injuries, um, you know, it's just out of necessity. But what's, what's interesting about this team is, you know, they say the hardest thing to do is, you know, getting stars, um, you know, 
uh, on your team. And the Royals have um, four guys, you know, uh, almost a third of the way through the year. They've got four guys with at least one and a half you know, wins above replacement um, this year. And uh, they've got three of them under contract for the next you know, four seasons. Um, so they seem to have some, some talent um, on the, you know, hitting side. Uh, but the problem is they kind of need a, a uh, entirely revamped pitching staff. Like they're like 10 pitchers away. Real, realistically. Um, so I, I, I'm cautiously optimistic about um, Singer and uh, Lynch and Coar at least, um, you know the top three that were that were selected. Um, you know, Bubich and uh, and Bolin are a little little more of a uh, stretch. You know, just because of how further down in the draft they were. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see. So I looked. Uh, I didn't write about this on Rose Review. I tweeted this, um, but the um, I looked at the uh, how the current group of college arms that the Royals have from last year's draft compared to. The Fab Four lefties uh, that made a um, made up a large portion of the the top prospects in 2011. Um, so just as a reminder, this uh, Duffy, Dwyer, Montgomery, and Lamb. And so when I looked at the the you know the lower minor leagues data for that, uh, Lamb, Montgomery, and Dwyer all kind of hit a big wall at Double A. Um, uh, Duffy sailed right through, which makes sense. He's the best of the four. Um, still still a good pitcher today, but. Um, the real trick is how these guys will handle double A. Um, and we just haven't seen that yet. Um, so it's the hardest jump in the minors, um, as they say, from, from high A up to double A. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's going to be the key is can these pitchers handle double A? And if they can, then we can start being more optimistic about them. But if they help run into a wall, you know, that's an issue. And that, you know, may in and of itself be very bad for the rebuild as a whole if they just can't can't cut it at double a yeah and i always feel like that the best way to you know develop a pitching prospect is to start out with five pitching prospects and just you know hopefully one of those guys will turn out and you know if if the royals get like one or two of those guys to be pretty solid pitchers i think that's probably a win at that point just because it is so hard to develop pitchers um, especially in the Kansas City organization. Uh, Sean, you know, the, the Royals have kind of aggressively promoted these guys, and, and they've lived up to it. I mean, they've really dominated each level they've been at. Um, do you think they've handled that development pretty well so far, and when do you think we're going to start seeing these guys in the major leagues? Yeah, <clears throat> I think I think from a timeline perspective, at least, that they've handled it right in – um, I mean, Singer, you probably could have nitpicked and said he could have gone to Lexington instead of Wilmington, but, I mean, it, it's all the same. Um, you expected both, you know, Singer and Lynch and um, even Coar to kind of dominate um, their, you know, advanced college pitchers at gigantic schools. Um, and so, I mean, them blowing away, you know, teenagers makes sense. So, yeah, double A is really where I think you're going to um, figure out who they are. Um, and I think it's been handled fine. I don't think Singer was moved up too quick. I think it makes sense. Um, if you think he's the most polished of the four or five, um, I, you know, he's going to be starting on Saturday um, coming up here soon. So I think that makes sense. And for seeing him, um, I think 2020 probably off the books. Um, I don't know if they would call them up. 
I mean, you figure they all get promoted, and they're all in Northwest Arkansas AA by June, to say or by say July, um, and then you know you give them a few months there. College uh, um, minor league baseball is done in early September ish, late ish August. So I mean, you could really see them going back to AA next year, maybe, and then up to AAA. Um, but uh, maybe a September call up would make sense. I can't. I don't think that they would rush him just because the Royals aren't going to be good next year. So, I mean, I don't know if they want to promote him just to uh, have him, you know, effectively lose a year. Not that they would lose it, but, you know, it, it would be one less year of control when your team's only going to win, you know, 70 or 65 games. So I think that 2020 might not be off the books fully, but I think that 2021 makes a lot more sense, uh, even if it's not from a development standpoint. It might make sense just from a, a team control idea standpoint. Let's turn to uh, this year's draft, uh, and it's coming up next week, and hopefully the Royals can supplement the, the farm system with some more talent. I was looking at, uh, we talked earlier with Fangraph's Kylie McDaniel, and he uh, has a new mock draft out. And I think the, the assumption so far has been that Adley Rushman would go number one uh, to the Orioles, and the, and the Royals would get Bobby Witt Jr., the infielder out of Texas. Uh, but in their mock draft now, they, I guess, have a little bit of wiggle room, in that they say that uh, the Orioles may be a little concerned with Rushman's medicals and may uh, want to save some money under their bonus pool, and that may put Bobby Witt in play for them at number one, in which case the Royals would take Rushman at two. Who do you guys? What do you guys think will happen next week, and who would you choose? I, I guess, uh, Sean, do you want to start off? Um, I'll go with who I would go with. I'm coming around a bit more on Witt Jr. Um, I still would prefer Vaughn. Ugh, I still would prefer Vaughn. Um, Andrew Vaughn, the first baseman from uh, Cal. Um, and I think it's close enough that I've heard a lot of good things just from some people that I've trusted to talk to about CJ Abrams, um, who sounds like he's going to go anywhere, maybe the Padres, but somewhere in the top six, um, likely, obviously depending on who, you know, is still left on the board before him. But, um, I, I like him a lot, and, and I think there's even an argument that Abrams has higher upside than Witt Jr., possibly. Um, but I think that the Royals will still go with Witt Jr., and I think um, someone mentioned it today, might have been, or the other day, might have been Keith Law uh, mentioned that if the Orioles for some reason passed, passed on Rushman, the Royals would still go with uh, Witt Jr. So I think it doesn't matter what happens. I think they're going with Witt, uh, but I think I would go with Vaughn. Yeah, the, the Kylie McDaniel, uh, the, at Fangraphs, they write that if Witt goes number one, the Royals would take Rushman. But if somehow Baltimore to take Andrew Vaughn, which they say is probably a very small chance of happening, uh, then there are they say, quote, rumors of the preference are mixed. I think they would probably still take Witt at that point, but that would yeah. be an interesting wrinkle to see what would happen at that point. Uh, Alex, I think, you know, last time we talked, you said you preferred pitching. Um, are you still taking that stance that the Royals should go in that direction? Yeah, it's not so much pitching, <clears throat> excuse me, as it is Lodolo specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like that kid at TCU. I know he was, I know he struggled his first two years, but he seems to have found it. Um, the other day he was throwing 95 in the fifth inning against Oklahoma State. So, um, but I, I'm coming around pretty hard on Bobby Witt Jr. Um, and, 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 you know, I, it looks pretty unanimous like the Royals are leaning towards taking Bobby Witt Jr., which is weird to me. And, and I want to know what you guys think about this. And, and I know it doesn't make, you know, a ton of difference maybe, but 
I don't know if I understand why the Royals would allow their love for Bobby Witt Jr. to be so public. Like, I, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's a little odd. I think it was uh, Jeff Ellis who tweeted today, or no, 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 it was in his mock draft. Jeff Ellis in his mock draft 3.0 um, made the point that there is a small chance this could be a smokescreen. Maybe the Royals try to underslot for Vaughn or even a bigger underslot for a guy like Lodolo at number two which again gets in the draft games, but you know, I don't understand why it would be so public. Like never, like last year was singer, you know, that was such a, a crazy surprise that, you know, I don't think anybody saw that coming. And so everybody thought, you know, the Royals are going to go prep talent, prep talent. And then they go all college kids. The Royals historically have been pretty good about, you know, keeping quiet what they're going to do. And now all of a sudden everybody knows exactly what they're going to do. So I don't know. It just seems odd to me. Yeah, I don't know if I get it, but I think I mean. So I, part of the thing I think recently is they haven't been necessarily in a position to give it away, just because they've been so reliant upon what happens ten picks before them, you know. But I think back when um, it came between Mustakis over Vitters, I'm pretty sure everybody kind of pinned Mustakis for that one. Same thing with Hosmer. They're big surprise. Well, I don't know if it was a big surprise, but. I think everybody thought that the Royals would have a shot at Bundy years ago, and then he didn't. So then everybody said, okay, well, they're going to take Starling. So I think they're actually in the position this year that they might not have been in the past, call it five years, um, that there is a guy that they know, like, hey, we're going to get this guy or we're going to get this guy. It's not like, hey, we have to wait for 10 picks to go. You know what I mean? And I also also wonder, too, like, you know, the Royals have a reputation of being like, you know, in love with high upside prep guys. And I'm sure, you know, everyone that's doing these mock drafts is talking to, are talking to good sources, but I'm sure like everyone's just saying, well, the Royals, that's the Royals MO. Of course, they're going to take Bobby Wood Jr. They're not going to take Andrew Vaughn because he's totally not their kind of player. And, you know, and that may be the case, you know, because that's kind of their reputation is, is kind of well-deserved, but that, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that's what they're going to do. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, what would be the advantages of doing a smoke screen? Smoke screen at this point, I guess, just to get an underslot deal with someone else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even if you could save a million dollars on Vaughn, like if you took Vaughn instead of Bobby Wood Jr., that million dollars. I mean, Cameron Misner. So, for example, Cameron Misner is falling pretty hard on all these mock drafts and scouting boards. He feels like a guy who, if you had an extra million dollars you could potentially float down to 44. And again, he's just one example. There's several different players that I'm thinking of right now that I think could fit that mold. And Ethan Small is another one out of Mississippi State. But it might take that much money. And So again, Brady Singer last year at 18 overall was a million dollars over slot almost. So I mean, that would be why you did it. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just don't, you know, because Bobby Witt Jr. is a prep kid and because he has so much leverage – to threaten to go to OU where his bloodline, you know, is strong. And again, people say, Oh, he's not going to go to OU. And, and I ask you to think about that where he can go to OU, be the dude on campus for three years and, you know, ride fancy charter buses to games or play minor league baseball, which is not glorious at all. I mean, you know, his family does well. So it's not like he's, you know, going to just cut a check, just take a check. So, I mean, he's got bargaining power. And so for the Royals to totally abandon, any bargaining power they had just it just seems odd see i kind of think it's the opposite that like um if you 
other than an injury, no one, I, I think it's unanimously, nobody taken in the top five has not signed other than, you know, an, an injury. Um, and so I think that anybody you take in the top, even top 10, I think you could just assume is going to sign because like, what's the upside for wit? I mean, let's say they were always taking a two, they offer them the pick is 7.7 million. If they say, okay, we'll give you, I mean, ideally the Royals should not pay him anything more than 7.2, which the White Sox have. So you de facto save up 500,000 just to right away with that. Um, but I think like, it's like, okay, we're going to offer you 7.2. Like you want to turn down that now, go to college for three years and try to move up one spot to first overall. I mean, I just think and he'll like, be 22 years old by the time exactly. he'll, he's yeah. done with Oklahoma. It's yeah, he's a junior year, so his, I, I think his his ceiling. I mean, his ceiling is first overall, and he's at second overall. So I mean, if it was you know, if if he fell to like thirtieth or something, where it's like, oh man, I was expecting seven point two, and instead I'm getting you know two uh, or one and a half, um, you know, peasant money like that, only a million and a half. Um, I think you'd be like, okay, that starts coming more into play. But no, I think I think at two, he, his leverage is just. I mean, do you really want to go to school for three years and try to come back and be good again? Because we've we've seen almost every single time guys who don't sign end up in a worse case, other than Nick Lodolo, uh, coincidentally in this draft. Is it? And it, are, it seems like guys are not falling for for signability reasons as much in the last couple of years. And, and I could be wrong. Correct me. Correct me if I'm wrong. But like. Like the guys that slide usually are guys. Everyone's like, he is not going to sign. Like Kumar Rocker last year. Like everyone's like, he's not going to sign no matter what. So yeah. you know he slid so, all the way to like the thirty eighth round. But that's, I don't see as many guys. I mean, I I would put more credence into this if maybe the Royals had a higher pick than forty four for their second pick. But I don't know. I, don't, I, I have a hard time seeing anyone sliding that far. But I, I guess I guess I could be wrong if if guys have been doing that recently. Yeah, the only guy this year is Jack Leiter, um, who's somewhere around like the 20th to 30th best prospect, and I think his dad is Al Leiter. Um, and so I think everybody's like, yeah, he's he's not going to sign, and so I think he's become the, the tough pick. Um, and then someone else, I forget who it was, they declared themselves like, they said, just don't draft me. And that's kind of what Kumar Rocker uh, did a bit. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think like if those top guys don't go in like the first – 20 picks like they're kind of expected to it's just it's off the board um unless someone like the diamondbacks could come along and do it they've got seven of the first 75 picks or seven of the first 70 something picks um so i think that they could snag someone like that because then they know okay if we can get like jack Leiter at um you know pick 25 or whatever their second pick is um then you know we we know we can save on the next couple picks we can just find some maybe not pure senior signs but some under slot guys because they've had discussions with guys that they know what they're going to sign for in case they need to move money around so uh, i think it's rare and i think it takes a specific case like having seven of the first 70 whatever picks like the diamondbacks have well, I think Alex sure. does bring up a good point, though. I think it is interesting that the Royals usually hold things very close to the vest, and and it is so public this year. Yeah, and um, yeah, no and, one I mean, saw the Dozier Mania thing coming. I right, mean, at all. right, right. Well, yeah, and 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 but but I go, but again, like they haven't picked in the top two, and even like the the Mustakas year, I seem to remember like people still being like, we don't know who they're going to take in the last, you know, in this draft, and I think also at that time maybe it was less clear. Who the top talent in that draft was after after the number one pick, uh, so it's it's maybe a little bit of a unique year in that in that respect, and that there are like really two maybe three guys that are kind of separate from the rest of the pack. I mean, I think um, uh, fan graphs they were writing that it's, it's really 
uh, Rushman, Witt, and Vaughn, and then there's 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 a little bit of a, a line before you hit the next three guys. Blade maybe in that group as well, uh, and then there's a pretty big drop off after six. So, um, I, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. Maybe the Royals have a, a trick up their sleeve for next week, and then Dayton Moore is going to surprise us all. But uh, uh, Matthew, I, I guess we didn't give you a chance to to say who you liked for for number two next. Yeah, so I think this is a situation in which the draft process has gone on, and I think this happens in every single draft that I've ever ever seen, baseball or otherwise, where at a certain point people kind of get bored with what's going on and they try to create some sort of alternate scenarios or just like, what if this happens? And like, I don't overthink it. It almost never happens. Mostly recently, we saw this with Kyler Murray at one overall, is that he was pegged there for most of the, most of the time, and then. You know, a week before the draft, there was like, oh, they might not pick him, or the Cardinals might not pick him at first overall. And then guess what? He went first overall. So I think that the Royals are going to end up with Rushman, or they're going to end up with Witt. And whichever one the Orioles pick at first, they're going to get the other one. I, I really think it's that easy. Um, you know, I, th- I think they're in a good spot. I've sort of made peace with both picks, you know. Um, it's It's kind of... Uh, kind of interesting, you know. I don't think the Orioles are going to pick Vaughn, you know. Although they might, and that's a really interesting scenario and something that we could look back on a decade from now to see which one of Witt or Rushman, you know, is the best player if the Orioles have a choice. But I don't. I think the Orioles are probably going to, you know, pick who who they think is the best at one overall, and I think the Royals are going to pick who they think is best at two overall. You know, maybe if they were, they were at eight or nine or ten overall, like they did when Dozier was drafted in 13, the Royals would make some sort of move. Um, but other other than that, I you know, I, I think that people are overthinking it a bit. The Royals are going to take Witt or Rushman. That's it. What's more interesting to me is who they're going to take at 44. Are they going to continue this college-heavy draft? You know, at 44, there's a lot of different choices that you can make. Um, you know, or, um, you know... Could they get uh, Misner? It's Misner, right? Not Meisner. I think it's Meisner. I think it's Cam Meisner. Meisner. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that's an interesting name to look out for is to see if he drops and to see if the Royals try to sign him. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see what they do with their 41st and 70th pick and, and 80. You know, their, their four picks uh, or their three other picks in the top 100. I think that's interesting. One thing that I do want to say um, is that uh, so there's a guy in uh, Pembroke Hill High School, Marcus Smith, uh, in Pembroke Hills in Kansas City, and he's like a 5'10 lefty with 70 grade speed, and I and he's uh, Baseball America ranked him as like the 213th best prospect, and I think there's like a 100% chance the Royals draft him. I don't have any insider information, but like, come on, how could they not draft <laughs> a Kansas City kid who's got seventy grade speed and plays good center field? Like, there's there's no way they don't end up with him. Yeah, and I, I, I didn't anticipate a lot of speed uh, in in the draft in their draft class next week. Uh, and I, I am interested to see if they go heavy on college pitching again because it did seem to work out really well last year. And I know they don't have as many high picks as they did last year, but. Um, you know, even some of the guys I got on a little bit later and even some of the college hitters they got like Kyle Isbell have, have performed pretty well so far. So, uh, I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind seeing them continue that strategy, especially if they do want to accelerate that rebuild. Um, yeah. Can I, can I chime in real quick? I wanted to say that, um, I do think that kind of as Matt had pointed out that I think that like this, this draft for the Royals and for even the Orioles and the White Sox, it's going to come down to it's not necessarily like, oh, man, who should we take? I think all three of the first three guys that, you know, should likely go 
are all fairly equal talent. I think it's going to be a developmental thing where like, um, and, and that's kind of how I thought with Bubba Starling too, is like, yeah, it sucks that Bubba Starling didn't work out, but the pick was fine. You know, you mm. can look at it in hindsight and say, oh, what an awful pick. But Bubba Starling was arguably um, the best prep high schooler um, in, in a long time for a while. Um, and then, obvi- and then you know, one of the best athletes on the board. So the pick makes sense. Same thing with Witt Jr. Or if they take Vaughn or if they take Garrison, if they get Rushman and the Royals don't pan out, they, it, Witt Jr. never develops and he ends up, you know, just being Starling again. I still think. I still think the pick is fine because I, I think it's going to be up to development. This is one of the years where it's just the first few teams have their choice of three very good prospects that um, are arguably all equal talent, and then you just have to develop them. So I, I think that's the way we're going to look back on this draft. No, I agree with that. I think that's a really good point to make too, and I, think, I do think there's a good bunching up, the, especially with the top three. I think the Royals, I mean, they can't go wrong in their respect that they're going to get a really good prospect out of this. Uh, and – uh, yeah, like you said, it's going to come down to development. As far as what I think will happen, I think it's going to go Rushman Wit. I think Matt's right. It's 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 what everyone's been predicting for for months. Yeah, and there's just just doesn't seem like unless something comes out like the night before that Rushman doesn't have like a a UCL UCL or something, you know, then you know it's going to go at Rushman Wit. Um, as far as who I like, I've been very split for like the last couple of weeks on Wit versus Vaughn. I kind of came down on the side of Wit today. I think he's got you know the, the better upside i think he's got a chance to be a really solid player at a premium position now he's probably gonna have to move off that position eventually if he if Montessi's still here but he seems like a guy that's capable of playing third or left field and still the bat will play at those positions um so i yeah i think he's kind of a i don't think he's like a generational talent or anything like that but he's a guy that has a, a decent chance to be an all-star level player at his at his peak if he hits that potential um, I don't know that, you know, Jim Callis had an article this week about, you know, he's the best shortstop in like three decades. Uh, I don't know if I would go that far. Um, you know, uh, Kylie McDaniel comped him to Trevor Story of the Rockies, which seemed like a pretty, pretty good uh, comp for me. Um, but I will say this, Sean, you tweeted out today, you looked at the, the Gatorade High School Player of the Year compared to the Golden Spikes winner, which is a top college player of the year who is Andrew Vaughn. He's a, he's a finalist for that this year. Uh, and the it seemed like the college player of the years did a lot better professionally than the high school players of the year. Now, that doesn't yeah. necessarily mean anything, but yeah. it does give you an idea that like these college players are much more polished and much closer to the big league. So Yeah, it's crazy. You could have just basically gone chalk, like just taken the best college, whoever won Golden Spikes. And to Witt Jr.'s credit, he's, he's a finalist for it. Uh, occasionally, Golden Spikes will have co- uh, high school guys and um, he was one of them for this year. He's a finalist for the Golden Spikes winner. He won't win it um, because it's always been a college player. But um, oh, so it's yeah. like all the amateurs they put them all together and say, I, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, it's but I mean, it still speaks to which junior's talent that he was nominated for the Golden Spikes. It's a semi rarity for prep guys, and um, yeah, I mean, you, it's just amazing that like yes, the two best players of the two list were both high schoolers. I think it was Kershaw and maybe. Grinky was the other one. It was Kershaw for sure, um, but then everybody else, you know, it, it was you know basically it was not a crapshoot, but it, the almost for a decade straight, it was guys who put up ten plus, fifteen plus wins every single year, year in and year out. So it's just a different um, dichotomy. Yeah. Well, we'll have to see what the Royals do next week. We're we're planning on having a, a probably mini reaction podcast right after the first round of the draft. We may do one 
after the draft is concluded as well. So definitely look out for that. Of course, we're going to have a lot of great draft coverage from Alex and Matthew and Sean, myself, uh, to get you all ready for the draft. So definitely look out for that. Uh, guys, thanks so much for being on the show today. Uh, we got to get Sean out of here. So, Sean, uh, do you want to wrap things up or do you want to punt again? Mm, uh, every I just watched The Matrix. So everything that <laughs> begins has an ending. No, damn it. <laughs> Isn't that that's oh, semi-sonic? Closing time. Yes, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so that'll be my quote. Uh, everything that has a beginning has an end. There it is. Right. Good night. Good night.